Good afternoon to our listeners. This is Jonathan Harris. My name is Andrew Gilmore. Coming to you live for the first episode of season two of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell University with the generous space and airtime of cornellradio.com. In short, our publication seeks to provide an open platform for scholarly writing, critical thinking, and reasoned debate on the myriad of issues in the fields of law and policy. Refounded in 2017, the review has in a short time earned a spot as one of the primary outlets for undergraduate students to intensively and meaningfully engage with policies and questions of law that affect our everyday lives. I am Jonathan Harris, co-editor-in-chief and a senior in the ILR school here at Cornell, and with me here is Andrew, one of our staff writers, who is also a senior and in the School of Arts and Sciences. In one of our most recent projects, we decided to launch a conversational component to our organization, where we will, in the coming weeks, bring to you discussions pertaining to recent case law, happenings from the steps of the Supreme Court and federal circuits, and projects and articles underway by our current writers and contributors. This podcast is meant solely for the purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to getting underway this afternoon after this short break. Well, Andrew, this has been a fairly hectic year, you know, with the, the COVID pandemic and the 2020 election. Uh, there have been a lot of disturbances in the tectonic plates of politics and judiciary. Uh, why don't you catch us up on the most recent developments? Yeah, John, you're definitely right. It has been a crazy year. Um, and to make it even more crazy, uh, famed Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually class of 1954, Cornell, tragically passed away earlier this year in September. Um, which, as we all know, ensued a um, pretty hectic confirmation process. President Trump, um, with a slim majority in the Republican Congress, um, nominated Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who had served on the Seventh Circuit of the Courts of Appeals to the Supreme Court, and she was confirmed. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, so I think it's important to note definitely that uh, now, Justice Amy Coney Barrett is the fifth woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Uh, but it is also interesting to point out that she uh, did not go to Harvard or Yale Law School, I believe making her the only one in the Supreme Court right now that did not. Uh, she did, however, clerk for uh, late Justice Antonin Scalia. She uh, uh, called herself a protege of his originalist and textualist interpretation style. Um, and this, the nomination and subsequent confirmation of now Justice Barrett uh, cemented a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, uh, with Justice Kavanaugh likely becoming the swing vote in 5-4 uh, decisions. Uh, what do you think, Andrew? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, John, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's definitely a, a realigning moment for the Supreme Court. I mean, we've seen it become more conservative. Um, under the Trump administration, as we all know. But I, I think this, as you said, really solidifies that uh, moment. And it really shifts the swing vote, as you said, to uh, Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and I think yeah. this will mean a lot uh, for the court this year and um, a lot of cases that have already been, been heard and we're waiting to hear from. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, moving to now the oral arguments that we've heard and the decision, some of the decisions that have been been issued over the past year, uh, one of those more important ones and one of the ones that we've been waiting on for a long time now is a case called California v. Texas. Uh, it's the second time now that the justices, but not this makeup of justices, have heard argument in a challenge to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act and its individual mandate. That first time would be back in 2012 when uh, the court heard argument and decided in uh, NFIB versus Sebelius. In that case, Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the court's four more liberal justices to uphold the constitutionality of the mandate under the taxing clause, not under the commerce clause that many uh, liberals and Democrats wanted, but rather under the taxing clause. Um, and now some important facts about this case. In December 2017, the Republican Congress, Republican Senate, reduced the penalty for failing to obtain health insurance under the ACA from $695 to $0 in anticipation for this case. So uh, following that development, Texas and a number of other states with Republican attorneys general filed suit in federal court against the ACA, arguing that without a penalty for noncompliance, the mandate's merely a command to buy health insurance. And you know, in that case, it's unconstitutional. Uh, and then once they get rid of that mandate, they would argue that the uh, the remaining provisions of the law are also invalid. So, so John, it seems like they're the question being posed to the court, right, is is now that the individual mandate, ironically enough, has a penalty of zero for not buying health insurance. Now, uh, these Republican states are, are arguing that now it's more unconstitutional. Yeah, you know that's that's very interesting that you say that. Um, uh, Justice Breyer actually brought up a really interesting point at oral argument that I think, you know, didn't really get as much attention as it should have. Uh, he pointed out that, you know, in the U.S. code, we've got a, a huge number of laws that give commands without penalty that they say, right, you know, right. go buy war bonds or go plant a tree as part of an environmental project. Um, and, you know, with these laws, the ACA and it's, it's a penalty of zero now, they're really indistinguishable. What do you think? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very interesting. And, you know, you were talking about what, what Breyer had said about how there are a lot of, you know, quote unquote commandments in the US code. Um, and I think kind of going off of that, right? And just kind of on this whole point of, of how it could possibly be more unconstitutional now, um, I know Kagan brought up um, a similar line of, of questions and oral arguments, you know, wondering how it could possibly be more, you know, coercive or more unconstitutional now that it is by definition less coercive, right? So now instead of having to pay $700 for not having health insurance, now you pay $0. How is that more unconstitutional? And, and I mean, I think that this comes down to what we see in the Supreme Court um, where, you know, this is about the law, this is about legal challenges. Um, you know, this isn't necessarily always about what seems plainly obvious from a from a policy standpoint. So I'm wondering, I guess, what you think, um, you know, the, the court's going to do with this. I know some justices have made suggestions to that point. Yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, we're we're absolutely in the right spot to ask what we think what's, is going to happen, uh, you know, 
in the last case in uh, NFIB versus Sebelius, because the the court um, by a slim majority upheld the mandate under the taxing clause, uh, I think the likely outcome is that uh, the now mandate with zero penalty is going to be uh, held to be unconstitutional, despite you know those those logical arguments that Breyer and and Kagan brought up and the citations to the US code that Breyer brought up, um, I think that they will rule that the mandate is unconstitutional uh, because there is no tax. Um, the decision might be different if it was under the commerce clause, but you know, it's under the taxing power. Uh, and then, you know, uh, Kavanaugh and Roberts both indicated an or oral argument that, you know, they were inclined to uh, leave the rest of the law in place if the mandate were to be struck down. It did seem that the Texas Solicitor General uh, really wasn't uh, convincing the justices that it should have been, a, that the, the rest of the ACA should be severed from uh, the mandate. Um, what do you think? Do you agree no. or do you see this differently? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's it's interesting that they kind of made those suggestions during oral arguments. I'm I'm wondering that, you know, some of our listeners they might be wondering, you know, well, why does this thing have to be constrained to that taxing clause? You know, you said, well, maybe if this were under the commerce clause, you know, it, it would be a different story. Is it possible for the Supreme Court to kind of change how they uphold this um, uh, this amendment, um, this mandate, so to speak, um, now that the, the tax is zero? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good theoretical question. But, uh, you know, if the court had decided back in 2012 that this law was a proper um, execution of Congress's Commerce Clause power, uh, then maybe that would be possible. I think it was the court's uh, four liberal justices, and then Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan uh, argued that it was proper under the Commerce Clause, but you know they were only able to get that majority because the chief joined them, uh, and he, I believe, wrote the opinion um, arguing it under the Taxing Clause. So I don't see it remotely likely now with a 6-3 solid conservative majority that the court would now reverse course entirely uh, and, and go back and, and hold this now zero penalty mandate to be under the Commerce Clause. Sure, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially given the makeup of the court now. Um, so, so what do you think this means for the future of the Affordable Care Act if we were to say that, um, you know, the mandate were to be struck down, but the rest left in place, so it were to be severed? Yeah, well, I think now, obviously, we're uh, delving a little bit into the world of, of politics and governance, but uh, certainly for the you know, by all means, what seems to be the incoming Biden administration. Uh, I think this is uh, certainly a win. It's not as big as a win as they would like it to be. Um, but, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act is still in place. They don't obviously have the penalty uh, for failing to obtain health insurance. Certainly they could reinstate that if the two Georgia runoffs this January go their way. Um, then they would be back in a situation where the law is under the precedent of NFIB versus Sebelius. But um, I think it is a win, you know, it will be interesting to see, however, 
you know, uh, President-elect Joe Biden has said that he he wants to expand the public option, create a public option, uh, and move by Obamacare and make it Biden care. And so, if he's able to create that public option, I'll be curious to see what these states' Republican attorneys general do in that case, and then what the Supreme Court will respond with. Sure. Yeah. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens. You know, obviously the next few months and then the next year for sure will be very um, important for the future of the Affordable Care Act, um, to say the least. Absolutely. Do you want to move us to our next case? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. So this is another case that is currently pending. Um, and, you know, this is very interesting, right? The city of Philadelphia basically contracts out, um, you know, various services and, and organizations that basically place um, children in foster homes. Um, now, Catholic Social Services, one of these groups, um, basically was alleged to not um, place children in foster homes uh, with same-sex couples. Now, the city of Philadelphia, um, basically stopped placing children um, in this program in, in CSS. So CSS filed um, suit, basically alleging that this is a violation of their um, free exercise and, and right to free speech. Um, and so this is, this is being tried and, and heard, and this is just another one of those cases in the line of um, religious rights that is being tried in front of the Supreme Court, and I think will be very important. Um, and I think there's a lot to talk about here, right? So you have a lot of things that the justices refer to um, in, in arguments, and I think that we should go through some of those. Yeah, um, absolutely. Let me just, can I just make sure really quick that I'm understanding the issues here in this case? Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it sounds like there's a number of issues, the first of which obviously being, uh, you know, is the city of Philadelphia violating uh, Catholic social services, uh, First Amendment re uh, religious liberty rights when it refuses to allow CSS to uh, take part in the city's foster care system? Is that right? Right. Yeah. And then I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about uh, Employment Division v. Smith, which seems to be uh, precedent, significant precedent for this case. But uh, it seems like the court might revisit that. Is that right? Yeah. So that's actually one of the core questions, right? So there's three main questions um, with Fulton. Uh, you mentioned one of them. The second is whether or not the court should revisit its decision in Employment Division v. Smith. Now, Employment Division v. Smith is a very interesting case, right? You have a few, you have two counselors basically who worked for a, a drug rehab organization. Um, so those two counselors, um, in their own time, they were using uh, peyote, a known, uh, very powerful psychedelic drug. Um, they were using it as a part of a religious ceremony. They're members of the Native American church. Um, so they were fired basically for misconduct. And they then filed um, a claim for unemployment compensation. The government denied this because they were fired for misconduct, a work-related misconduct. So they filed suit for similar, um, under similar um, clauses, um, you know, 
free exercise um, in the First Amendment. And the Supreme Court actually in a 6-3 decision, um, and, you know, somewhat shockingly by uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, you know, writing from the majority that, you know, there is no guarantee from the government that if you can create any exemption related to religion, you know, any legal, any exemption to the law that you just are granted that, you know, it's not as if you can just say, I was doing X, Y, Z, you know, for religion, therefore, how could you possibly, you know, you know, punish me for engaging in that activity? It's like, you don't just get an exemption for everything. Um, and so it was this kind of argument that Scalia gave, basically saying that you don't just get every conceivable kind of, of exemption that's really important here, right? Because it's more complicated than just, I practice X religion, therefore I did Y action. So you stopping me from doing that is completely against the First Amendment. It's like, it's much more intricate than that. And one way to think about that, especially here, um, is CSS's capacity as a government contractor. And there's different justices who have different takes on this, but I can bring up one take and, and I'll see what you think of it, right? So, you know, CSS is operating in, a, in an open market effectively, right? They're a government contractor. The government of Philadelphia chooses to operate with them in order to perform the function of placing foster children in foster homes. And, you know, so the city of Philadelphia for what some would say are, are reasonable circumstances has chosen no longer to engage in that open market with CSS. Is this the same as, as, as punishing CSS? Is this the same as taxing them, as, as imprisoning its members? Uh, you know, I don't think so. But I guess I'm wondering if there would be another side to this, if you'd be able to form the other side. I know, um, you know, Alito um, forms another side. Roberts asked some interesting questions. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about this. Yeah, certainly. So uh, I, I actually I'd agree with the how you came to the result um, that the city is contracting with CSS and, you know, in operating in a free market, they, they absolutely have the right to choose who they contract with. I think it, it in your discussion of employment division V Smith, uh, you brought up something really interesting, which is that, uh, you know, when, when we allow broad uh, leeway for, for religious exemptions, then you could really just avoid every civic duty. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't respect religious liberty. We absolutely should. But it's also crucial to point out that the city has an anti-discrimination law, which protects its citizens uh, against discrimination if you're a same-sex couple. And uh, it's, it's also crucial to point out that Catholic Social Services is not abiding by that anti-discrimination law. So in the case where the city is contracting with Catholic Social Services and Catholic Social Services is knowingly and clearly uh, uh, disobeying the city's anti-discrimination law, I think the city is well within its rights to uh, refuse to refer foster children to them. Uh, I know uh, Roberts, the chief, seemed to, uh, seemed to uh, agree with this argument that uh, 
the city or rather CSS is acting as a government contractor. You know, in that situation, the city gets to strike its balance however it wants when it sets the conditions for the city's own foster care programs. Uh, now Alito, Alito and Thomas actually- uh, They disagree no, with that. <laughs> yeah, certainly they disagree. They earlier this year actually, uh, in a, a case on the shadow docket, uh, they even brought question to whether Obergefell, the landmark 2015 case, which established uh, same-sex marriages, is protected under the, the 14th Amendment. They brought question to that decision in light of religious liberty. And so Alito actually said at opening or at oral arguments, if we're honest about what's going on here, this case is not about ensuring that same-sex couples in Philadelphia have the opportunity to be foster parents. Philadelphia can't stand the message the Catholic social services and the archdiocese are sending by continuing to the, adhere to the old fashioned view about marriage. So when Alito sees this as uh, intolerance by the city of Philadelphia, um, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a logical argument? Do you think that's an argument that's gonna hold water that the, the city of Philadelphia is intolerant to the old fashioned view about marriage? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I definitely see where he's coming from, right? I, I think right. that he's he's probably partially he's probably right to say that you know Philadelphia isn't in that courtroom, in my opinion, at least. You know, to ensure the same sex sex couples have the opportunity to foster parents, it just maybe they're there for that, but they're just not they're not a, an activist group. You know, they're just simply a government executing its duty. It seems it seems probable that. The city of Philadelphia is there because the city of Dis Philadelphia, you know, disagrees with this message. And if that is the case, um, it's a question of, of whether they're allowed to hold those disagreements. Certainly they personally can, but whether or not they're allowed to not engage with CSS in this contractual um, market because of that view, that's the question that I, I guess the court has to answer. And I guess something else, which is interesting, right? So, I mean, that's what Alito said, but, you know, Thomas and Alito, you know, we could probably take a guess at, at where they'll fall um, based on <laughs> what they so. said. But, but I think that what's interesting is they look at this from, um, you know, they don't really see it as an open market where the city of Philadelphia is, you know, every day choosing to contract with CSS. And, you know, one day they decide, you know, we hear that CSS is violating a law of ours, the anti-discrimination law. You know, we're no longer going to contract with you. They view it as, you know, you have contractual relationship relationships, you have licenses, you know, you've agreed to this. You know, you can't just go back on that and say, well, now, you know, we're just not going to place children uh, in your program because we disagree with you. So I think it's complicated. I think it's easy to say, and I think a lot of us would like to say, you know, what CSS is doing is, is wrong. Um, it's intolerant. But I think that, you know, at the same time, the city of Philadelphia should generally, and I think governments should generally caution themselves from um, choosing to engage with private organizations based on um, policy disagreements. And obviously it's, it's more intricate than that too, but, but I think that's just where I fall on it. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a fair take. I think, uh, you know, Alito certainly in my mind 
uh, is right that, you know, the city of Philadelphia really can't stand that message. That's why they established their anti-discrimination laws. And, you know, that's why a lot of this, this argument in this case will be decided over, uh, at least in my opinion, and as you uh, pointed to, whether whether the city is contracting with CSS or whether CSS is uh, licensed with the city. Um, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the liberal world, and I think uh, certainly a lot of Democrats are afraid that, you know, ju uh, Justice Barrett's now on the court. I think that it, it's possible, but not certain that she'll side with uh, Alito and Thomas uh, and CSS. And, you know, that brings us closer to uh, a world where um, religious freedom is a preeminent right, if not the most important right. And that, yeah. you know, the ability of governments to set their own anti-discrimination laws uh, or right. free speech or other rights as Alito and Thomas pointed towards Obergefell, that those will take um, a backseat to religious liberty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's that's spot on. I think another interesting part about this, right, is you know, part of the question as we talked about is about employment division. Um, you know, if they go back and, and they were to change that, you know, ironically enough, though we like to say that we know, you know, the court's conservative and. And we know which justices are going to do what, you know, employment division v. Smith was written as a majority by Antonin Scalia, right. you know, one of the most, you know, famed conservative justices um, in the history of the Supreme Court. And, you know, they would be going back on what his decision is. So I think that kind of gets at um, the intricacy of the Supreme Court and how it's not always so much about um, conservative liberal, but it's more about um, judicial philosophy and where justices fall on specific legal clauses that can't always be interpreted beforehand. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with this one. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I think we might get, uh, you know, we don't know quite yet, I think, when this opinion will be issued, but I think we'll get we'll, our first look at uh, whether Justice Barrett uh, really sees herself in the legacy of Scalia or whether she's going to disagree with him in this case. Right. And, uh, you know, I think this case brings up a lot of similar issues to a really, really important landmark decision that, that Justice Gorsuch issued uh, a little surprisingly to a lot of us this summer, uh, Bostock v. Clayton County. Um, yeah. It was a consolidated case. There were a number uh, of folks who had uh, filed suit under Title VII, um, alleging that being fired or, you know, being the victim of an adverse employment action for being gay or transgender was a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, you know, I think most notably, uh, the individual that we saw at the forefront of this was Amy Stevens, who presented as a male when she was hired by a funeral home. Uh, this is not who the case is named for, but uh, just one of the more notable plaintiffs. Uh, and, you know, after she informed her employer that she had planned to live and work full-time as a woman, she, she was fired. Um, 
that meant that uh, she she planned to undergo a process of transition to dress and to live as a woman, and um, her employer fired her for it. And uh, unfortunately, Amy Stevens is no longer with us. She or she uh, passed away uh, earlier this year, actually before the decision was handed down. Uh, she wasn't able to see um, how she was a part of history. But uh, I think surprisingly, the chief and Justice Gorsuch sided with the plaintiffs in this case in holding that an employer who fires an individual for being gay or transgender does violate Title VII. And uh, what we saw in this, in this opinion was really just a uh, really traditional textualist reading uh, of the statute. Justice Gorsuch really wrote plainly. It was easy to understand. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. He said, homosexuality and transgender status are inextricably bound up with sex. When an employer fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender, it fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. And uh, also very importantly, uh, you know, I, I study labor and employment law here at Cornell, and I thought this was a, a really great line from the Justice Gorsuch. He said, an individual's homosexuality or transgender status is not relevant to employment decisions. You know, I certainly agree with that. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Andrew, what do you, do you have any thoughts on this case, on, on Justice Gorsuch, his decision? Yeah, so I actually think I have a lot of thoughts. I, you know, whether this is ironic or not, I don't know. I don't know what irony is anymore. But I actually wrote, um, I actually wrote an article for the Law Review um, about this case and its consolidated case, um, Altitude Express. So Altitude Express is actually um, the case featuring Stevens. Um, so just to provide a, a second of background on um, Bostick, um, you know, basically you have a, a gay man working as a child welfare services coordinator. Um, he began participating in a, a gay recreational softball league. Um, he then received criticism for his participation in the league and for his sexual orientation. Um, and then, you know, he was, he was discharged for quote unquote conduct unbecoming of its employees. Mm -hmm. um, when he had received lots of positive um, reinforcement um, prior to his participation in the softball league. And so I think one interesting part about the, these two cases um, is that, you know, this is, it's not, for our listeners, it's not a question of whether or not the employers fired these individuals as a result of um, their sexual identities. Um, they stated in the original hearings and cases, these employers stated, I fired, um, you know, so-and-so employee because of their sexual identity and their sexual right. orientation. So that was, it's like an assumption in the case, which is really interesting right. to me. So that's not a question. The question is whether or not this is a part of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, you know, personally, I was surprised by their decision. I was surprised that it was a 6-3 in the way that it was. Um, you know, obviously, I hope it's obvious. Um, you know, we can agree on that quote that an individual's homosexuality or transgender status is not relevant to employment decisions. Mm -hmm. But for me, I expected 
justices like Gorsuch um, to defer to to Congress to say, you know, if you know, I believe this, but I'm not a legislature. If if you believe this, then then add it. You know, pass a law saying you are not allowed to fire on the basis of of sexual orientation. Um, and so this is to me what was surprising. But getting into the specific legal argumentation, um, right? They're using this kind of but for analysis that you touched on, um, right? Where you can say that sexual orientation is separate from sex, but it is that fact that you said. The fact that, you know, if I have pictures of, you know, my husband because I'm gay on my desk, you know, if I'm woman, if I'm a woman, and I have those same pictures of my husband because I'm straight and my employer, you know, fires the person who had, who was a male, but not the person who's a woman, even though both of the pictures feature a person who's a male, you know, that is discriminating on the basis of sex. Um, and I, that was a little convoluted. And I think it's because it's, it's a tough thing to understand, but it's basically saying though sexual orientation is a distinct identity from sex. And I believe that I believe sexual orientation is different than sex. When you're treating members of different sexual orientations differently, you're doing it because of sex, at least to some degree. And so I think that's what they decided on. Um, yeah. And I think that was the key argument from my understanding of the analysis. Yeah, I think, so my, I th uh, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I, uh, I, think, uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, your, your understanding of the argument, you know, I, I myself, I was also surprised when I saw that Justice Gorsuch had not only sided with the, the uh, four liberals in this case, I was less surprised that the chief had, had, had moved to uh, the liberal side on this case because he sees himself more as an, an institutionalist. And, you know, this was one of those really uh, fiery cases where um, there was a lot of backing on both sides. Um, and I think it's possible that, that Justice Gorsuch joined the, uh, the liberal side on this case and joined with the plaintiffs to write the opinion, maybe to tamp down the opinion just a little bit, maybe make it a little less broad than it, than it would have been uh, if it had just been the chief and the four liberals. Um, but, you know, for me, there was just this, this one uh, hypothetical, which you touched on a little bit with your, your picture on the desk example that Justice Gorsuch uh, laid out in his opinion that made it really clear for me. Um, Justice Gorsuch said that, uh, imagine you have an employer uh, with two employees, both of whom are attracted to men. The two inv individuals are, to the employer's mind, materially identical in all respects, except that one is a man and the other is a woman. So if the employer then fires the male employee for no reason other than the fact that he is attracted to men, the employer discriminates against him for traits or actions it tolerates in his female colleague. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting that you pointed out that Justice Gorsuch didn't defer to the legislature on this issue. We see a lot of that uh, with textualist interpretation. Um, but I think, you know, I think he made it so clear in his opinion that uh, at least for him, it seemed that it would not have been, uh, it was so obvious to him that 
this was the right outcome that he just couldn't defer to the legislature. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think it's very interesting that they made that decision. And, and I mean, you know, it's certainly good for society. Um, definitely as a, it's pretty shocking, right? That before that decision, at least federally, you right, know, it yeah. was perfectly legal for a company to fire someone on the basis of sexual orientation. Yeah. Um, and, and surely we've, we've gotten, you know, a good step in the right direction towards um, employment equality and uh, protection. Um, I just wanted to correct something that I said. I said that um, Stevens um, was a part of another case, Altitude Express. Um, so her case was actually part of RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes, BEOC. Um, so that was a separate case decided, but, but all of these were kind of consolidated. Um, Altitude Express actually is another case about um, Donald Zarda, who was a skydiving instructor. Um, and, you know, he was fired on the basis of sexual orientation. And this was just another case that came together to form this ultimate decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wanted to make that correction. But I think that these, these are some of the, you know, I think this is probably, in my opinion, the most interesting case of the year, probably one of the more consequential cases of the year. Um, yeah, I'd love for our listeners to go read my article about it. Yeah, that would be great. It was definitely an interesting article. Uh, well written. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't necessarily hold up in the federal judiciary, but not everyone is not always right in terms of law. Uh, interpretation. So I've definitely written some articles that have been wrong uh, outright. Uh, some of that have been closer to being right. Um, any any trends or cases or issues that you're looking towards either in the world of the, the law or the or politics that you're looking forward to tracking this year, Andrew? Um, that's tough. You know, I mean, these are definitely definitely some of them, um, a good amount of them. I think Fulton and California v. Texas are, are going to be very consequential. Um, you know, I'm not so sure, I suppose, if I'm looking forward to anything specifically. I'm certainly looking forward to a lot of things politically, but I don't think we should necessarily get into that. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, I'm excited for the future of the Supreme Court and, you know, to see what the 6-3 majority does, um, to see if, if they're as conservative as um, the analysts would tell you. I think that I tend to say that they wouldn't be, in my opinion, because they're not tied to their politics. They're independent, and I believe that. They can operate independently. There have been justices on the Supreme Court who were confirmed, you know, by Congresses that were of one party and by a president that were of one party and then went and, and did completely shocking things. And I think that we've seen isolated cases of that over the last three years. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing more because I think it's one of the last institutions that's truly independent and can really make academically based nonpartisan decisions. 
Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great take. It was really interesting. I, uh, I, I agree with, with your point that uh, we've seen in the past justices who, you know, were nominated by presidents who expected them to lean one way and they turned out leaning the other. The two that come to my mind immediately are uh, Justice Souter um, was nominated because he was thought to be a conservative and by the end of his tenure on the court turned out to be far more to the left than many expected. And then the second one, although uh, far more, uh, much more limited space, Justice John Paul Stevens really had a, a huge evolution in his his thought process on the death penalty. Uh, in in his tenure on the court, he he began uh, in believing that the the death penalty could be um, executed in a way that was uh, consistent with the Eighth Amendment, and ended his tenure on the court. Uh, really believing that there there was no way for the death penalty to be consistent with the Eighth Amendment amendment. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm also very excited and eager to read the opinions that come out of this court. I think this first term, uh, you know, with the telephonic arguments and the the uh, brevity of the cases that they've heard, this is a a big term for the court. Um, so. We're all we're all eager, uh, anxious to read those decisions. Um, Absolutely. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks to our listeners. And uh, thank you, John. We'll, yeah, we'll see you in two weeks.